Praise God. Now this, this morning, I've entitled the message, What Are Your Priorities? And we're actually going to be going over the story of the, of the rich young ruler. You guys remember that story? Of the rich young ruler he comes up to Jesus saying, What must I do to inherit an eternal life? Well, if you don't remember, we'll go through it right now. But this is, a, this is kind of a strange one for me because usually when God puts something on my heart to preach about, um, it's more so because I, I see a need. I see a need of what's going on. And this is kind of a strange one because I, particularly our core group here, I don't see uh, a really an issue in this area. I think that, our, that, they, that God is our party, that, that that's the case here, and that there's not much going in the way. And and it's strange because usually when something's on my heart to preach on, I, there's something that, that, is, uh, that we're dealing with or there's something that we need to be taught on. So I wondered about this one, you know, because actually the beginning of the week and actually through most of the week, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to preach on. And I began going through my notes and, and some of the stuff that I, I thought about before, and this one stood out. And I'm like, well, that's, that's strange because I, I think we're, we're pretty strong in that area right now. I think God began to speak to me. Actually, this morning, he began to, to kind of lay it out for me as we were in prayer, is that, truthfully, this is kind of like a preventive maintenance thing. You know, there's some things in life that you've that you got to deal with that, that we want to get ahead of the curve. You know, we, we change the oil in our cars because it's preventative. You know, if, if you wait till you got a problem to change the oil, if you, if you wait till the, the engine seized, I mean, you know, that, that's a lot more damage gets done at that point than if you would just change oil all the way through. That preventive maintenance preventative maintenance. So that's kind of, I think, I think that's what God's dealing with us here today. This is, we're, we're just, you know, making sure we're dealing with some of the core stuff and, and, and uh, just keeping our focus on Him. This is to, to help encourage us to keep, a, keep our focus on Him. Because you see, in today's society, um, especially for those that believe in God, that we, we come into a situation where God kind of just gets fit into their life. You know, they, they carve out a little bit of time on Sunday where we can fit God in, but the rest of the week, there's no room for God. We've got too much other stuff in our way. When it's convenient, God can come in and, and share in our lives, but when it's not convenient, He gets pushed off to the side. And today we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler, like I said, who's, who's kind of dealing with the same thing. He's got everything going on in his life, and, and when, when God makes a request of him, He's like, oh, that doesn't fit into my schedule. That doesn't fit into my plan of things. So as we go through today, I, I do want us to think about, you know, to take this as an opportunity uh, to, to, if God shows you something in your life, let's, let's deal with it before it becomes a problem. And, and uh, you know, this, the, the whole point of these kind of messages is, is so that we're convicted, not condemned. The difference between conviction is con- and condemnation is condemnation, there's no way out. You just feel terrible, there's no way out. But conviction is a way for us to grow. When, when God points something out in our lives, it's for us to grow and make a difference. So that way, uh, in the end, we come out much stronger in the end. Amen? So the question is, what is our attitude of heart today? What are we willing to give? What are we willing to give up to serve our God? So the first verse we're going to look at today is the, the beginning of the story of the rich young ruler. It's Mark 10, chapter, sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 18. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, this rich young ruler is doing the same thing that many people in today's society do. 
They run up to God and they say, God, what do I have to do to be right with you? God, what can I do? What are the things that you need me to do? Do I need to, to uh, uh, ask forgiveness from a certain amount of people? Do I need to not, you know, how many lies can I tell a day and be okay? How many, what are these things that I have to do? What is the checklist that I have to meet that I'll be okay to inherit eternal life? This is kind of where the I'm a good person argument comes in with people. They, they say, well, God's not going to send me to hell. God's not going to send me to hell because I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person. It's, as the owner ever noticed, it's almost always phrased, I'm basically a good person. <laughs> so God's not going to send me to hell. And the truth is, you're right. God doesn't send anybody to hell. God has provided a way that you can have eternal life with him. When you, if you're going to hell, you're, you're making that choice on your own. You made the decision because God has given you everything you need to spend eternity with him. I just bumped my screen like 75 times and now my notes are way... <laughs> Whoops. There we go, I'm back. <laughs> so, yeah, that'd be a long service. <laughs> But as we all know, when people make the argument, basically I'm a good person, God will let me in. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Every single person. There's not a, a good enough person out there. You know, we look at these altruistic people that do great things for people. It doesn't matter how great that they are. They're still not going to make it in if they haven't received a brand new life inside of them. Because we've all fallen short. And the truth is, this rich young ruler is not the, only, the first person that Jesus has dealt with asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In Luke 10, verses 25 through 29, it says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So the truth is, all these things, loving God with, with all your mind, heart, and soul, and loving your neighbor and yourself, can only be done in a, in a correct manner, in a true manner, as if you have a changed heart inside of you. Because otherwise, there's always something in between you and God. There's always something more important tugging on you if you haven't been made brand new. The truth is that we love because he loved us first. You can't love somebody unless you learn how to love from God. Otherwise, it's, a, it's just a shell. It's a shadow of what true love really is. You know, we love our neighbors not because of the great things that they do, but because God loves them. And if God loves them, well, so do I. But this lawyer, he takes a look back at his life and he says... Well, I love God. I'm doing pretty good there. You know, I love God with all my heart. But he takes a look at this. But maybe I haven't been treating my neighbors how they should. And we know this because he asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? He wants to validate himself really quick. He wants to justify himself because loving your God with all your heart, you can say that, but there's no real measure for that. You know, we can't say he loves God more than another person, but we can see how you treat your neighbors. 
You know, when he's, he's standing in front of people, all his, his, his uh, contemporaries are standing around him, and, and Jesus points this out. Well, you've got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and uh, so he says, well, well, who are my neighbors? Can you clarify that for me? Because there's some people that I may not have been so good to. Are they my neighbors? Because if they're not, then I'm okay. He's trying to validate himself. The truth is, he thought, if they're not technically my neighbor, then I don't have to treat them well. Did any, any of us ever do that, I think? Where we, we see how close to the line we can get without slipping over the edge? Especially young believers, you get that a lot. Am I, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? You know, the Bible doesn't technically say we, we can't drink. It's not technically a sin. So, you know, how close can I get to that edge before I slip into sin? You know, that's a, a, the same thing that, that a lot of people are doing in this life. What do I have to do to be good? And Jesus lays it out here in a minute. But then he says something interesting. He says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you, know, you read this at first glance, and you're like, wait a minute. Is Jesus saying that he's not good? Why do you, I mean, is, what is Jesus trying to say here? But the truth is, I think Jesus, is, he's looking at this guy, and he's like, do you understand what you're saying to me. Do you, understand, do you have the gravity of the situation of who you're telling me I am? According to Jewish tradition, Jewish law, that no one was good except for God alone. You didn't call teachers good. And the truth is, this young guy's probably just trying to flatter Jesus for a, for a better response. If I, if I butter him up, maybe my, my level of responsibility will be less. But Jesus is pointing out, do you recognize what you're doing? Do you understand that you're standing before God in the flesh? And he's trying to make that point to him, putting him to the test. You know, when we come before Jesus, we're standing before God. And that's the same thing this, this young Jewish or this young uh, ruler was doing as he stands for God. And, and Jesus wants to, you know, kind of bring it to his attention. Do you realize what you've just, the trueness of what you've just said? Do you recognize who you're standing in front of? So something that we have to look at is if we're dealing with this, you know, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life, to have eternal life, is that eternal life for us is an inheritance. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something that, that we can do enough good things to make it in. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, a matter of fact, this is the, the verse that we, we've named our church after. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. See, our inheritance, this eternal life, it's a gift. You can't ever go to God and say, what must I do? What are the the steps required for me to make it in heaven? Do you have a a 12-step program to get into heaven? It's nothing like that. It's an inheritance. and It's a gift. And the Bible says that it's according to His great mercy because He didn't give us something that we deserved. Instead, He gave us something that we didn't deserve, which is grace. Instead of getting what we deserve, we're being born again and made brand new. And in some ways, the inheritance is, is much like our earthly inheritance. When, you, when your parents pass away, oftentimes they'll, they'll pass what they have on to you. So inheritance is is much like that because uh, God has passed on what is His to us. This inheritance, what is God's, is us, is ours. And the truth is, when you receive that, when you receive that from your parents in this this earthly world, 
You don't receive it because you were the super-duper kid, at least in most cases. I'm sure there's some petty parents out there. But for the truth is, when you receive an inheritance, it's because you're related to them, because you're, because you are their children. And it doesn't matter that you may not have been the best kid ever. I know there's some, there's some times in my life that I drove my mom crazy. I know for a fact. Truthfully, I was driving myself crazy at that time in my life. You can look back in retrospect and realize that things weren't as great as you thought they might have been. If I'd have just done things a little bit differently. But the truth is, it doesn't matter how bad that I've been to, to my parents at, at certain points. That's not going to infect their inheritance for me, their love for me, any of those things. So the inheritance from God, in, in some ways, is very much like you know, what we deal with as an earthly inheritance. But it's also very different in some ways as well. See, earthly inheritance is finite. How many know if, if your parents leave you the house... The house is going to degrade. The house is, is going to begin to decay over time. It's, it's not worth, it's not the same as when they got it brand new. And that goes with anything that's passed down. Matter of fact, in today's society, the, the, the death tax is so bad that, that, if, that when you die, you're taxed so heavily, you can't even pass everything down. You've got to give some of it to the government. It's been corrupted by, by our laws today, that inheritance. But the Bible says that the inheritance that comes from, from God is imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away, and it's reserved for you. You know, there's, there's nothing that, that can take that inheritance away from us. There's no laws in this world. There's, that's how it's different, because it's reserved for us, and it's, we receive it just as it was intended. In verse 5, it says that it's the power of God through faith that that stuff is reserved for us. We can be sure that we have eternal life because he's reserved it for us. Paul said it like this. He said, I know in whom I have entrusted my soul to that day, basically. He said, I know who I've entrusted. So we can have, have confidence that that is being held for us. The story of the, the little girl that went shopping with her mom, and it's it's Christmas time, and they go to the mall, and even in the malls here, and we don't have all that big malls. You know, you ever seen the parking lot situation on Christmas? I mean, you couldn't, you almost got to ride a map to your car because you'll never find it because it's so busy. So this this young girl, she's out shopping with her mom all day, spends the entire Saturday in the mall, and they're going from store to store, and and the little girl's having such a great time, and doesn't think twice. She's just with her mom, and she's she's doing she's doing everything, no issues, store to store. It's busy, it's packed, not a care in the world. But then they, at the end of the day, they walk out to the front parking lot and they look out and the little girl sees the sea of cars and she says, Mom, how will we ever find our car? And the mom says, well, you've trusted me so far all through the day to get you from store to store to take care of you. Do you think that I can get us to the car right now? And the little girl says, Mom, I don't know how, but I believe you. And that's kind of how we are with God. Sometimes we look and we don't understand how this is all going to work, but, but we trust God because he says that, that it is reserved for us. We trust Him and He's going to take care of us. And finally, we need to understand that this love of His is unconditional. You see, grace is what's unique about Christianity. And I think I've told this story before, but I like it, so you get to hear it again. But it says, During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of the return from death. 
The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into this room and said, what's this rumpus about? And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offer a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. You know, God loves us unconditionally, much like we love our children unconditionally. I mean, it doesn't matter how bad the things that your kids do, you still love them. And your love is offered to them without condition because they're your children. And the same goes for how God loves us. Except for much better and much effective because we can't even imagine, we can't even fathom being the kind of parent that God is to us. So as we continue on in the story, in Mark 10, 19 through 20, it says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these commandments from my youth up. You see, Jesus is trying to show this young man something. First, he comes in front of him and says, He says, Why do you call me good? Because only God is good. He begins to, to, sh- to say, Look, do you understand who you're saying that I am? And then he says, he begins to hold up a mirror. Because that was the, that's what the law really is. The law is a mirror. The mirror. A mirror, if you stand before a mirror, and you know when I, when I tell my son, go look at your face. Go look in the mirror at your face. Because he's got food. Just, it's amazing. And he, and he goes and he looks. How many know that standing in front of the mirror is not going to wash his face? Standing in front of the mirror, he begins to see the food on his face. But it doesn't clean his face. He has to wash, right? And that's how the law works. It's like a mirror. You, you stand before it and you can see your dirt, but it doesn't clean it off. That's where grace comes in. That's what Jesus does. He, he shows, holds up this mirror and he begins to, 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 to show this man. Say, hey, take a look at this mirror and tell me where you stand. And the worst part is, is the young ruler is in the basically a good person attitude and he doesn't even see himself as a condemned sinner. He says, well, I've kept all these things from my youth. He doesn't recognize that there's something fundamentally broken inside of him. He doesn't understand that no matter how well he kept those commandments, it's not good enough. You see, and these are the things that you can, you can do to physically measure. These are the ones that, you know, you know if you, you know, someone can look at you and say, yeah, you lied, you cheated, you stealed. I mean, these are the kind of things that, that are measurable from the outside. But it's interesting, the ones that, that, Jesus, didn't meet, <laughs> that Jesus didn't mention was, was coveting. You know, that's one you can't measure on the outside. That's something that's on the inside when you covet something. But these are, these are all the things that you can measure on the outside. And Jesus holds up that mirror. And as far as this young man was concerned, he had kept the law perfectly since his youth. Because if you didn't know, age 12 was the, uh, the age that once you hit 12, then you were responsible for keeping the law. Up until then, you were, you were a kid and you had some leeway as you're learning and growing. So he was judging himself by his best attributes. From the outside in, he was doing great. But there's truth, there were still problems going on. No matter how, how good of a life we live, there's always an internal problem. 
See, Jesus kind of knew what was, I mean, Jesus was, was aware of what's going on in this kid's life. He knew what was going on. Jesus and understood that he probably he had this issue with money. As we know, we're going to find out that as the story goes on, that, that this guy you know, was covetous and had, a, had an issue with money. He, wanted, he liked money. He liked the stuff that it brought. So he wasn't looking at the bad parts. He was always just looking at the good parts. And the truth is, we all tend to do the same thing. When you judge somebody else, you tend to look at, you tend to judge them by their worst areas. But when we judge ourselves, we always look at our best areas. And we expect others to do the same, even though we don't do the same to them. You know, and the truth is that this attitude that this young ruler had, Paul had the same attitude once as well. In Philippians 3.6, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He was talking about himself. However, Paul began to recognize that that, that wasn't enough. He teaches that all that he gave up, all the stuff that he was living for, wasn't enough. And what he had accomplished in his life was nothing compared to what Christ had accomplished on the cross. Matter of fact, what he had accomplished had meant nothing. What, what he had accomplished was like filthy rags. Being blameless according to the law still left him with a heart of stone. And he was still spiritually dead. But it's what Jesus accomplished that mattered. And he now knows that he had a heart of flesh and a new spirit inside of him. So Jesus begins to continue to, to minister to this young man. And it says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack... Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The truth is, we, we know that this young ruler is not measuring up to the, to the requirements of God. We don't have to know anything about him to know that, because the Bible says that all have fallen short. What I find amazing and, and just evidence of God's love for us is Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Jesus felt a love for him even when he was in a broken state. You know, he didn't have to measure up first before God would love him, before Jesus would love him. And I thank God that that's the same for us. You ever have people that say, oh no, I can't go to church until I, until I clean my life up? Not go to church and that'll help you clean your life up. You know, accept the Lord into your life. That'll help you clean your life up. You don't got to clean yourself before you come to God. But here we begin to see the real problem. On the surface, he was doing everything right. But Jesus says, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. He says, but at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. You know, I was looking at this, and I was thinking, why did he walk away saddened? And my first instinct, my first thought is, well, he's sad that he has to give all his stuff up. That's why he's sad. Because, I mean, he's a ruler. He's got everything that he ever could want. You know, he's, he's got money. He's got nice houses. You know, he's got the best horses. I mean, he's kicking camel. I mean, he has everything. And... I'm thinking he's sad because he's got to give this up. But I began to recognize, I don't think he's sad because he has to give this stuff up. You want to know why he's not sad that he has to give this stuff up? Because he's not going to give that stuff up. I think he's sad because he realizes that he's giving up eternal life. Because he wasn't willing to give up his stuff. He grieved because he recognized that he'll never have what he just asked Jesus for. 
Now, in this guy's case, it's the money that's the problem. It says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This is the thing standing in the way for him, was the money. But the real issue is, come and follow me. If you want eternal life, you have to follow Jesus. Now, for other people, it's not money. Some people, it's just it's cars. Some people, sports get in the way of their walk with, with Christ. Or maybe it's people's opinion or your social status that, man, I can't, I can't follow God because people will think I'm less cool. Or people might make fun of me. Sometimes it's your job that gets in the way. I can't serve God because I'm too busy serving my job, my employer. Or what about maybe people? You know, your spouse can get in the way of your walk with God. The truth is that the, that the order should go God, then family. Not family, then God. When we were first trying to get this Bible study that, that eventually turned into this church off the ground, when we lived uh, in uh, Gladden Farms, we had a neighbor a few houses down, and, and uh, it was an older guy and, and lady, and, and I was, we were handing out flyers to them, and I began to talk to them and, and, and had a pretty good conversation because the wife, there was a time when she served God. But the husband, he was just professed atheist and wanted nothing to do with it. So I'm like, well, why don't you come? And she's like, oh, I can't. It'll just cause problems in our relationship. Because what I'm guessing happened, and I don't know, this is just speculation on my part, but I imagine that when she was serving God, she was just beating her husband with the Bible daily and was accomplishing nothing, just causing problems. And he didn't want nothing to do with it, so they, they were almost splitting up because of this. So she decided that the best course of action was to give up God to save the relationship. She put her spouse before God. Now the truth is, you need to keep God first in your life no matter what. And if you have an unbelieving spouse, the Bible says that you can win them without a word. You know, being, being a, a nag or being someone that's just over the top, that doesn't help anything. What you need to do is show them Christ's love by your actions. In 1 Peter, it says to live in such a way to win your spouse without words. You know, there are lots of things that can stand before you following Christ. And the truth is that your idea of treasure, for this guy it was money, but your idea of treasure will greatly impact your ability to serve God. Because what, is, what do we have in our lives that we might put in front of him? In Matthew 16, 24 through 26, it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The truth is that following Christ costs. There's a, there's a, a price to be paid to follow our Lord and Savior. But in the end, the return on our investment, and I hate to, to use that word, but you get, the, you get what I'm trying to say, is, is that the return is unimaginable. It's priceless. It's unfathomable. Sometimes there's a price to be paid. Sometimes we'll deal with stuff, but what we get in return is amazing, and it is so worth it. There was a story of... Uh, I don't even remember when this is. Joseph, you might know, but there's a story of a, of a young man being burned at the stake because he refused to, to, um, 
to forsake God. Basically, they said, you need to denounce God. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. So they, they burned him at the stake. And the people that were with him said, you know, hold up a finger to let us know if, if it was worth it, to let us know if, if you see God. And uh, the story goes that he's on the stake, he's being burned. And as he's being burned, he actually holds up two fingers as if to say that it was more than worth it. He's being burned to death. What he, what he went through to stand for Christ was more than worth it even dying in such a horrible way. See where it says here, to, to deny yourself is not about denying specific things, but it's about putting Christ first in your, in your life always. To deny yourself is to make sure that Christ always comes first, to not let your wants and needs get in the way of following Him. And then it says to take up your cross and follow Him. To take up your crosses to associate yourself with the cross that He carried. With His guilt and shame that He felt. That means that sometimes there's a price to be paid. It doesn't mean that sometimes the things in your life are, uh, are your cross to bear. But it's just, it's just a willingness to, to, to carry your cross. To, to a willingness to deal with the guilt of shame that He dealt with to follow Him. I mean, the cross for Jesus distressed Him so much that he was sweating blood, but he picked up his cross for us. What are we, what are we willing to deal with? What are we willing to deal with and, and pick up for him? So the thing is, if our priorities are out of whack, we try to hold on to what we have in this life. But in reality, the Bible says that we lose it. It says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. By trying to save our current life, to save the things that we have, we will actually lose our life in the end. And I always find it interesting when we talk about eternal life and eternal, uh, or eternal life is, is we kind of think of this, you have eternal life or you don't. But the truth is that we're spirit beings. We live on eternally whether we have eternal life or not. The, 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 the decision is, the question is, do you have eternal life or do you have eternal death? But it's eternal nonetheless. But it says if we are willing to lose our life now, if we're willing to, to make our life secondary to what Christ wants for our life, then in the end we gain. We gain life. We gain eternal life. We gain true life. And this is an attitude of heart, to be honest with you. Because most of us, particularly in America, will never suffer for the gospel like some do in other countries. They'll never, we'll never experience the amount of persecution that other people experience. We'll never deal with what other people have to deal with. So what we're dealing with is not what are you willing to endure as a, as a measure of physical things, but what's the attitude of your heart? Are you willing to endure those things, even though you may never have to? You know, I don't think it's a requirement that we suffer the same way that others suffer. Like I said, it's just an attitude of heart. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to deny yourself and give yourself wholly to Jesus and to follow Him no matter what the cost is? And that's only a question you can answer for yourself. But I think that's our ultimate goal is to give everything that we have to Him and say, Lord, what would you have me do? I don't care what it would cost. I'm going to do it. I resolve in my heart to follow you no matter what. In Luke 16, 10-13, it says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, else you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's basically the rich, younger's, the rich young ruler's problem right there. He wanted to serve his wealth, but the problem is you can't do both. And what I find interesting is, is in this story, wealth is the very little thing. He was faithful and is a very little thing. And Jesus is dealing with money right now. If you're, you know, all the riches in the world is a very little thing compared to what we have in Christ. It's tiny. And he says, if you're not faithful in such a little thing, who's going to entrust true riches for you? To you. You know, small things are important. I was reading this story about the, uh, the launch in, in 1986 by NASA, the Space Shuttle Challenger. It says, it was a defining moment on January 28, 1986. The Space Shuttle Challenger exploded and killed all seven astronauts aboard. It was a major setback in NASA's manned space flight program. What was the monumental case? What was the monumental cause of the shuttle disaster? With the millions of dollars that had been put into the shuttle program, it would have to be something big, right? Not exactly. 73 seconds into the flight, a flame shot out of the side of one of the two solid rocket boosters. The point of failure was an O-ring. Some say it was made out of the wrong material, that it was vulnerable to frost. Others said it was too small. Regardless, it failed, and our astronauts died. Such a small thing, an O-ring, a little rubber seal, can mean so much. And the truth is, is the little things in our lives mean so much as well. What are we, gonna, what are we put first? What are we faithful in? I've heard it said that the last thing saved on a man is his wallet. But the truth is, you can't separate the material from the spiritual. They, they fit together. They work together. If you want to know what someone cares about, take a look at their wallet. Take a look at their checkbook, their check register. You want to know what they care about? See where they're spending their money. But the thing I want to point out here, too, is once again, money is not the only possible master in your life. Some people don't have that issue. But there are other things that can be the master in your life. But the truth is, you can't serve both. You can either serve God or you can serve that other thing. And what's even worse is if you decide to serve the other thing, God becomes an enemy. The Bible says that you, will, you cannot serve two masters because you will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. I want to be devoted to God. Amen? Pardon me. In Mark 10, 23, it says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Such a strange statement, or a hard one to deal with. Like, how? I mean, that means you're rich, you can't make it in. But like I said, money is not the problem in this guy's life, per se. It was the attitude of his heart. Money was just the thing that it was manifesting in. Money is just a tool. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is not evil in and of itself. You know, a brick can be used to build a building, but it can also be used to bludgeon somebody. The brick isn't inherently evil, and it's not inherently good. It's what you use that tool for. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by long for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is often quoted wrong all the time, that money is the root of all evil. But it's not. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. 
the reason it's hard is not the money itself. There's nothing wrong with money. Even having money is not an issue. There are many wealthy people that do great things for the kingdom of God. But the problem is, is how the money is used in this case. And that's why I'm saying it's hard for the wealthy because for a lot of people, it's what they've placed their hope in. They've placed their trust in money. And, it, and they trust it to meet every single one of their needs. They don't trust in God. They're trusting money. And if their money would, would dry up, they would be terrified. They wouldn't know what to do. Also, it's what defines them. They feel that their, their value, their worth, is wrapped up in their money, their wealth. Without it, they feel worthless and insecure. Their, their worth or value is determined by how much money they have. Or maybe it's what they use to relate to others. They use it to fit in or to be liked. If you have lots of money, all of a sudden, you know, people that, that win the lottery all of a sudden have all kinds of family they didn't know about. Or maybe they feel like that with money they're self-sufficient. They can handle any problem on their own. They don't need God. Money can be a stumbling block in many ways. The reason why I think Jesus is making this point is if you're poor, you can't really put your your faith in money because you don't have any. And that's what he's saying. That's why it's easier to look to God for these people. But even for poor people, there can always be something that stands in the way. That I've entitled this message, What is Your Priority? Because whatever your priority is, whatever your treasure is, is what dictates and guides your life. The truth is that you can be wealthy and still serve God. Many people do, and they do great things for the kingdom of heaven. And you can be poor and serve God and do great things for the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 24-27, as the story continues, it says, The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to them, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, this is a strange teaching to the disciples, because according to, to uh, what the, the teachers taught, the Jewish teachers taught, is that if you were wealthy, that was a sure sign of blessing from God. I mean, if you were wealthy, that must mean God really loves you. I mean, we look at today's society, and I think we can all agree that that's not the case. We look at all these, these rich, famous stars, and their life is a disaster. But I still think a part of us goes, on some occasion, well, if they're so bad, God, why are you giving them so much stuff? Why do they seem to have it so good? But the truth is, they don't really have it that good. Their life's a mess. And also, you have to ask yourself, if you were the devil and you wanted people to end up like them, wouldn't you give them everything so that they look like they have it all? I think the devil blesses people when he wants to use them to impact our, the youth, our children, when he wants to make it look like that they have it all, but really they have nothing because they don't have Christ. But that's why they ask, then who can be saved? If even, if even the wealthy people can't be saved, if even the ones that God's favor is poured out upon can't be saved, then who can be saved? Because they still haven't quite got it. That it's, you know, you're not... Being wealthy does not prove that God loves you more than everybody else. And you look at the, the analogy that, that Jesus uses, it even makes it seem like it's worth. I mean, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, 
even back then when they're using probably needles made out of bone or whatever, they're not like the needles we have today where the hole's so tiny you can't even get a piece of thread through it. You ever need to try to suck it on the thread so <laughs> you can point it through there? But even if it's a big hole, this big, a needle with this big, you're not fitting a camel through it, right? That's impossible. Although I can poke my head through a, through a hole this small. I can't. You guys don't believe me? <laughs> Praise God. All those listening to this are thankful they didn't see that joke. <laughs> Praise God. Oh, see, you guys messed me up. I don't even know where I'm at now. Yeah, but even the story Jesus used seems to say that if you have money, you can't get into heaven. Now, the strange thing about this is I believe God wants you to prosper. I believe God wants you to have more than enough, and I, I believe God wants you to have an overflowing abundance of wealth. But not for the same reason the world thinks you should have money. The truth is that, that we are blessed so that we can be a blessing to others, that we can be a blessing to the church, that we can further impact the kingdom of God. I was at uh, Pastor Mike's son's birthday party a few days ago, and a bunch of the guys were all around joking and were talking about our blessing overflowing and I jokingly said, yeah, all my blessing overflows into the church. And Pastor Mike looks at me and goes, do you ever think that maybe why you're overflowing in the first place? He goes, Pastor Mike messing up a good joke with theology again. <laughs> Praise God. But that's, that's the reason why we're blessed, so that we can be a blessing to others, that we can be a blessing in our church, that we can make an impact. I'm not going to be wrong, I think God wants you to enjoy some of what you have, but that's not the primary purpose of what you have. It's to make an impact. But the great news is, though, that with God, it is possible. He says, with people it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The truth is that if you'll put God first with God, even with all your wealth, even with all the trappings that that could bring, if you'll put God first, it's still possible for you to get into heaven. And that goes for any trapping that we might have. If we'll put God first, then it is possible. Amen? So the disciples begin to say, well, what about us? And Mark 10, 28-30 says, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. See, the truth is, these guys, the, the, the disciples, they gave up everything to follow Jesus. I think sometimes we don't really realize what they went through, but they left their families, they left their, their businesses, their jobs. I mean, Peter, the one that's speaking right now, we find out later in Scripture, it says Peter's mother-in-law. That means Peter was married. Peter left his wife. He left his business. He was a successful fisherman, which is one of the better-paying jobs of those times. He left everything to follow Jesus. And God sees this as God sees our struggles as well. God sees what we gave up as well. I've told you before that, that I gave up quite a few friends when I went over to, when I began to give my life to Jesus. Not intentionally, but we just didn't relate anymore. So because I wanted to follow God, in essence, I lost many friends. 
I had some struggles with my family at first who thought this was just a phase I was going through and, and they didn't want to hear anything I had to say. And they would just get irritated. There was, there was some struggles with my family. But I thank God the Bible says that anybody who's to give up any of these things that you'll receive a hundred times as much now, not just in heaven, but it says now in the present age. You're going to receive blessing now for what you're willing to give up for God. And in my case, that's true because I look at the amount of friends that I have now, it's more than I've ever had. And not only are they, or do I have more, but they're, they're, they're higher quality friends than most of the friends I had back then. They're, these are people I can count on and rely on. And I look out in, in the congregation here and the, the amount of friends and quality friends, people that I can trust and rely on is amazing. And I look at my relationship with my family right now and it's stronger than it's ever been. My sister and I have a greater relationship than we've had in a really long time and my, my mom and her husband are back in church again. And I think a lot of that was, was just seeing me, the life that I lived. I had an influence on them. You know, God says that, that we will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. But the one thing that nobody wants to talk about, guess what else comes with it? along with persecutions. Guess what? It's, it's, sometimes it's going to be tough. You're going to deal with stuff. You're going to have to work through things. Getting saved does not mean that you're never going to have any more problems. The truth is, you might have some problems that you never would have had if you wouldn't have got saved. You're going to have some different ones. And there's some things that you won't deal with because God's going to take care of you. But you're going to have problems that you never would have dealt with. But the difference is that even when you deal with problems, worldly problems or persecution, as God is there with you always. He's there to pick you up and to walk with you. And I tell you what, I don't know how many people get through some of the stuff they go through without God. Because He's, he's our rock. He's, our, he's the great comforter. He gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding. He gives us a joy that we wouldn't have otherwise. In Matthew 6, 31-33, it says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, the truth is that if we'll put God first, even if we have to give up a bunch of stuff, you know, this, this, this young ruler didn't understand that even if he would have gave everything away, God would have still took care of him. He would, he would have been there for him. And, and he, what he didn't understand he, is that he would have received even more in this present age than what he gave up if he would have just put God first. But instead he grieved because he decided to give up eternal life instead. A young woman brings home her fiancé to meet her parents. After dinner, her mother tells her father to find out more about the young man, and the father invites the fiancé into a study. And he says, so what are your plans? The father asks the young man. And the kid says, I'm a Bible scholar. A Bible scholar? Hmm, the father says. Admirable, but what will you do to provide a nice house for my daughter to live in as she's accustomed to? He says, I will study, the young man replies, and God will provide for us. And how will you buy her a beautiful engagement ring such as, the, as she deserves, asks the father. He says, I will concentrate on my studies, the young man replies, and God will provide for us. And children, asks the fathers, how will you support children? Don't worry, sir, God will provide, replies the fiancé. The conversation proceeds like this, and each time the father questions, the young idealist insists that God will provide. Later, the mother asks the father, how did it go, honey? And the father answers that he has no job, no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. 
shake your head over there. <laughs> you know, the truth is that God will provide for you. Sometimes through a father-in-law. <laughs> but God will provide for you if you'll put him first. God knows your desires. He knows what your wants are. He knows what your needs are. And he'll provide all of those things. As the scripture says, all these things will be added to you if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Amen. And the last scriptures we'll look at today is Mark 10 1031. The last scripture of this story says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Then in Mark 10 42 through 45, it says, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become a great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the problem this rich ruler had is he didn't know what greatness really meant. Greatness in this world and greatness in the kingdom are two very different things. According to the world, this, this rich young ruler was considered great. He had it all. You know, the, the little kids looked up to him. That's who they wanted to be. They wanted to be rich and have all these things that he had. But the truth is that if he doesn't change his heart, he'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Even though he's the greatest here, he's the least in the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't change his heart, he wouldn't even be a, get to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus is our great example in this. Jesus came to serve. Jesus is God in the flesh, but he came to serve us. It says that he didn't consider deity a thing to be grasped, and he set it aside, the scripture says. Now that's about, he's at the highest part that he can be, and he came down to the lowest rung on the ladder so that he could serve us. And this is the same attitude that we should have inside of us. That we'd be a servant of all. We'd put everything that we want to consider greater than God. We'd push it to the side and consider God greatest. And in doing so, that we'd be a servant to all. So this morning, like I said, this is more of a preventative maintenance message. But let's resolve to always put God first. Because that's the very same, exact same thing that He did for us. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go ahead and uh, stand to our feet.